So in, in the year 67, the war took a turn for the worse. The northern revolt collapsed. Josephus was a traitor who uh, gave up at the Battle of Yodfat, the Battle of Jotapata, and all the great revolutionaries of the Galil fled to the south, so that there were three leading revolutionary figures in the southern part of the country by the end of the year 67. Who were they? Well, you have Shimon, um, Elazar bar Shimon, Elazar bar Shimon, who uh, was the victor at the Battle of Beit Choron and who got wealthy and was able to fund the revolutionary movement through the wealth that he uh, accumulated from the spoils of war. And he had a base of operations in the inner courtyard of the temple. Much to the chagrin of the government, he was able to lodge himself firmly in the inner court of the temple. The other figure was uh, John of Gishalor, Yochanan of Gushchalav, who uh, fled to Jerusalem and wanted to be part of the government, but was rebuffed in the early phases of his political career. The third one was Shimon bar Giora, who, as his name indicates, was the son of a Ger. Uh, he was the son of a convert. He was a provincial revolutionary, a wild man with... Uh, so a social agenda in addition to a political agenda. He wanted to overturn uh, the, the, the domestic situation and get rid of the old elites in favor of something more egalitarian. He went to Masada. He went to Masada temporarily in the year 68, was not invited to come into Jerusalem right away, for good reason, because when he finally gets there, he's going to cause a lot of trouble. Okay, so <laughs> as 67 turns to 68... There is a problem from the standpoint of the government. The government is run by the Pharisee Shimon ben Gamliel, the father of whom? Rabban Gamliel II. The son of? Rabban Gamliel I. Okay, so Shimon ben Gamliel okay, is the, the leading Pharisee of his time. According to our rabbinic tradition, he is a Nasi, but that office doesn't actually exist yet, so it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, and in addition two former high priests. You have Hananiah ben Hananiah, Ananas ben, ben Ananas, and Yoshua ben Gamla, of fame in rabbinic literature for uh, establishing Jewish elementary schools. So these are two former high priests who are Sadducean, and you have the Pharisee Shimon ben Gamliel. They represent the moderate leadership. They're not, they were not looking to pick a fight with Rome, but having a, uh, started one, they'd like to win or at least come to a stalemate and a, political, a, a, a reasonable political conclusion. They're not looking for a fight to the death like the revolutionaries are. Well, because Elazar bar Shimon's people, the Kanaim, held sway in the inner court of the temple, they were able to depose the uh, reigning high priest and replace him with someone of their choosing. And Josephus... Um, describes what happened, basically uh, critical of the Kanaim, of the Zealots, for disgracing the office of high priest and making a mockery out of Judaism. Now we shall see who was the one who really made a mockery out of Judaism. We'll have to examine it at the end of the paragraph. So he says like this, Through their atrocities uh, ran a vein of ironic pretense, more exasperating than the actions themselves. For to test the submissiveness of the people and to prove their own strength, they attempted to, to appoint the high priest by lottery, though the succession was by birth. So here he says that really the line of high priest should be father to son, 
or if not father's son, at least within a certain family, the high priestly family. Um, and that's true. According to the uh, interpretation of the text of Torah, uh, it's supposed to be that he was appointed from his brothers, that the father was the high priest and there's a selection from the, from the next generation. Uh, whereas lottery, what was done by lottery in Judaism? The division of Eretz Yisrael was done by lottery. All right, but office holding was not done by lottery. It was done by Yichus. So this is a departure from the tradition. Uh, now the excuse given for this arrangement was, huh? Yichus, Yichus, yeah. The excuse given for this arrangement was ancient custom. They said that from time immemorial, the high priesthood had been conferred by lot. In reality, this was a reversal of the regular practice and a device for consolidating their power by arbitrary appointments. So, what Josephus is saying is true. That if any claim uh, by the Kanaim that in the past the office of the high priest was determined by, uh, by a lottery, by uh, you know, chance, that is not the case. So that would have been a, a misrepresentation of, of, of Jewish history. But... When he says they just wanted to have to, to consolidate their power by arbitrary appointment, truth be told, yes, they were doing that, but they were not the first to do it. Who, in an earlier time, a hundred years earlier to be exact, appointed someone kind of arbitrarily in order to consolidate his own power? Which Jewish leader? And I use the word Jewish with reservation. Which Jewish leader appointed a high priest in a, something of an arbitrary fashion in order to, cons- to consolidate his own power? Herod. Herod, exactly. Herod, having eliminated the last of the Maccabees, having drowned his brother-in-law in the pool at, at Jericho, okay, appointed uh, Simon ben Bythus, who was a foreigner, who was not a, an Israeli Jew, but was a diaspora Jew, in order to consolidate his power by making a mockery out of the high priesthood. That Whereas this office once had great strength, by virtue of, pe- of prominent people holding it, if you appoint some nobody, then the office is diminished, and the office of king is the only one left that's of any significance. So Herod did that a hundred years earlier. What Josephus is saying is that the Kanaim, the political revolutionaries, were trying to do the same thing. By appointing a Chaim Yankel, who was of no consequence to the office of high priest, uh, and not appointing one of the prominent Sadducees, it meant that that office is now nothing, and the political revolutionaries are everything. Okay. Now, assembling one of the clans from which the high priests were chosen, a clan called Eniakin, or Yehoyachin, they drew lots for high priest. The luck of the draw furnished the clearest proof of the depths which they had sunk. The office fell upon one Panias, the son of Shmuel, Pinchas ben Shmuel, of the village of Afta, a man not only not descended from high priest, but too boorish to have any clear notion of what the high priesthood might be. Anyway, they dragged him willy-nilly from his holdings and disguised him from head to foot like an actor on the stage, robing him in the sacred vestments and teaching him his cues. To the perpetrators, this shocking sacrilege was an occasion for ribald mirth, but the other priests watching at a distance from this mockery of the law burst into tears, cut to their heart by this travesty of the sacred rites. So Josephus doesn't like the revolutionaries. After all, he's a Benedict Donald. He goes to the other team. So... It doesn't, it doesn't surprise anyone in the least that in describing what happened, how the, the, the Kanaim appointed a Kohen Gadol, he's going to say this was a disgrace, a sacrilege against Judaism, a mockery of the whole system. But, to be honest, what really happened? The families that had Yichus for the previous 200 years were not biblically 
uh, entitled to the office of Kohen Gadol, that the office of Kohen Gadol belongs to HaKohanim Halavi'im B'nai Tzadok, which we'll read about in this week's Haftorah, Parshat HaChodesh. Okay, the B'nai Tzadok had held the office of Kohen Gadol from the days of King David all the way until Chonio III in the year 175 BCE, when Antiochus Epiphanes was bribed by Jason and then by Menelaus that the office of Kohen Gadol should go to the highest bidder. And then, after two uh, decades of it being either vacant or held by corrupt people, it was held by the Chashmonaim for the next hundred years. By what right did the Chashmonaim have that office? Because they said so. All right. I mean, uh, who made Rabbi Siegel the chief rabbi of America back on the Lower East Side in 1904? The, the sign painter did. He said, painted chief rabbi of America. Okay, so... By, by, by what right did the Cheshbonim have it? Well, because they were militarily in control of the situation and they could allow themselves, they could afford the, uh, themselves the, uh, the, the title of king and of, of high priest. Okay, but after the Herod took over and knocked them out of the box, you have random uh, families who ascend to uh, positions of prominence in the Kahuna. By what right did they have it? None, other than that for the last three generations they got lucky. So the Kanaim in shoving aside the prominent Kohanic families were not overturning a thousand years of biblical tradition. Not at all. They were overturning a few generations of corruption. There's a big difference. Okay? So Josephus doesn't, doesn't describe it that way because he has his own interest politically. And some would argue, Yeshomrim, that the, uh, the family from which they chose Pinchas ben Shmuel was actually a Tzadokite family. So the intention was to restore the old biblical uh, paradigm. Or it was to allow, the lottery system was to allow for a certain democratization of the process that had been uh, taken away by the wealthy elite for a hundred years. And that democracy is part of this social revolution. It's not just about the, uh, kicking the Romans out of the country, it's also about getting rid of the, uh, the Romanophile Jewish elites who were, the, who were the, as much of a problem as the Roman, uh, um, the Roman heathens. Okay? So that's what happens in 67. The high priesthood is taken away from the moderates and is now in the hands of a stooge of the revolutionaries. So what do the moderates do? to try to regain uh, the momentum and control over the situation in the country and especially in Jerusalem. Well, there is an attempt by Shimon ben Gamliel, Ananus ben Ananus, and Yoshua ben Gamla to retake the initiative and to expel the zealots. But they fail miserably. What happened? So this is the infamous zealot siege of, of 68. Um... Elazar Bar Shimon's people were in the inner court of the temple. There was violence all over the city between moderates and, and political hardliners. And Ananus ben Ananus assembled an army to attack the temple mount and conquer it. And their intention was to expel the zealots or kill them. And hopefully, after that, would be successfully accomplished uh, to cut a peace deal with Rome. But, having uh, <coughs> put a siege around the temple compound and about to achieve victory, all of a sudden, there's an interloper 
Yochanan of Gush Chalav, John of Gishal. What happens? He had cultivated a relationship with Ananus ben Ananus, pretending to be a political moderate, when in fact he was a real revolutionary, a tough, uh, tough cookie. And no one was really sure where his sympathies uh, truly were. I mean, no one, no, no one understood him. And so they forced him to take a solemn oath that his allegiance was with the moderate party. And he did. And what he was supposed to do was to go into the temple compound with some of his boys and try to use the powers of persuasion peaceably, not through force of arms, to tell the zealots to come out and surrender. But, in fact, he didn't do that. As soon as he got inside the temple compound, he immediately switched uh, his uniform and said, no, I'm, I'm with you boys, I'm a revolutionary, and we need to fight back. We need to fight back and, t- and, and, and kill the, the moderates. But, we're, in a, uh, we're boxed in here, we need help. So, whom to, to whom can we turn for help in an emergency who could be here fast? that will uh, support our cause of radical Jewish revolution. So, of all peoples, they turn to the Idumeans. Mm. Now, the Idumeans don't necessarily make the most sense to, uh, to be radical Jewish revolutionaries. But if you think about it for more than five seconds, actually it does make sense. Because they hate the Romans for having done bad things to them over the years. They're converted to Judaism, and some of them are sincere believers in Judaism and worshippers the, at the Temple of Jerusalem. They worship the God that is worshipped at the Temple of Jerusalem. And they don't want to see that temple and that city of Jerusalem fall to the hands of their oppressors, the Romans. So the Idumeans were... Sometimes uh, the convert is, is the most passionate Jew of them all. They were willing to fight for the cause. So what did John of, uh, of Gush Chalav say by means of a messenger to the Idumeans? That Ananus ben Ananus and the moderate government has been in discussions with Vespasian to hand over the city to the Romans. That they're on the verge of surrendering. They're, wa- they're going to wave the white flag. They're capitulating. Was this true or was this an outright lie? It turned out it was an outright lie. But the Idumeans believed it, and 20,000 of them came marching towards Jerusalem, ready to fight the Jews for the sake of Jewish nationalism, as odd as that might sound. Okay? And uh, they're not welcome. The moderates say, you know, turn around and go back. We have this under control. But the Idumeans are ready for a fight. So the zealots who are boxed in the temple compound... Uh, take advantage of a storm that happened uh, the night after the Idumeans camped outside the city, and there was thunder and lightning. And under the cover of the sound of the thunder, like in Shawshank Redemption, where he smacks on the, the sewage pipe, okay, with the lightning and thunder, they broke open the bars of the gates of the city, and the Idumeans were able to sneak in. And having done so, they massacred some of the moderates, they killed Ananus ben Ananus, and Shimon Yoshua uh, uh, ben Gamla, and presumably also this is when uh, Shimon ben Gamliel dies, although we're not sure. We know that Shimon ben Gamliel doesn't survive the war, but we don't know exactly how he died. We think it probably was in this episode. Um, now, if, if that's how he died, it differs dramatically from what we say on what holiday? 
on Yom Kippur, what do we say? That Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, Nasi Yisrael, died as a contemporary and colleague of uh, Yishmael uh, Kohen Gadol. So the truth is, there's a lot of problems with that paragraph of Tia Rabbi Yishmael Atzmo. And other than the fact that it's a great Chazonish piece, uh, there's not a lot of truth to it. I mean, it's, it's great Chazonish, but that's it. Um, It's a poem, but, but there's a lot of truth to, to, to pieces of it. In other words, we know that some of those, the, those uh, characters listed were great rabbis who really were executed by Rome, most likely during the, 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 Tra- the Trajanic and Hadrianic persecutions. But Shimon ben Gamliel, there were two of them. There was the first one who died in the, in the, in the first war at the hands of his fellow countrymen, and there was Shimon ben Gamliel II, who was his grandson, who was the father of Rebbe and the son of Gamliel II, who died of natural causes in the year 165 or thereabouts. So who the Shimon ben Gamliel was in the Tirab Yishmael, we don't really know. Um, there's a lot of scholarly debate about that, whether it's, it's anyone, it's a complete fiction, or maybe it was Shimon but not ben Gamliel. The point is, it wasn't uh, this Shimon ben Gamliel. He, he died uh, in a civil, civil conflict, not at the hands of uh, a Roman executioner. Okay, so having found out that, uh, in fact, Ananus ben Ananus was not about to capitulate to the Romans, um, the Idumians were, were distressed about the fact that they had come in and killed all these people for no good reason. And so they left. But having left, they uh, allowed the city to fall into the hands of Yochanan of Gushchalav, who for the next year, from the middle of 68 to the middle of 69, runs a tyrannical regime in Jerusalem, uh, killing a lot of his detractors and political rivals, uh, with a tacit cooperation of Elazar Bar Shimon, who still hunkered down in the inner court of the temple. So you have two revolutionaries in the city who are throwing their weight around, and no more serious uh, leadership among the moderate camp. And as for the moderate rabbi, Yochanan ben Zakkai, he slips out at some point, uh, together with his disciples. And the Christians are long gone. So there really are no more uh, significant personalities who oppose uh, war to the death after 68. Okay. Um, <coughs> what happens uh, as far as the Romans are concerned? Well, Vespasian had conquered the Galilee in 67, and in the early part of 68, he conquered Perea, which is the east bank of the river. He also conquered uh, Lod, and Yavne, and Hamat, and Shomron, and uh, uh, Shechem, and Yericho, much of the area to the north of, of, of Jerusalem, uh, north of the Jewish heartland, was conquered in the early part of 68. But on June 9th of 68, Vespasian suspended all military activities for about a year. Uh, why did he do this? So the answer is that Nero, who was emperor from 54 to 68, was becoming increasingly unpopular as his years went on uh, for a variety of reasons, tax, taxation, um, infrastructure issues, and eventually he was deposed. He was deposed because he had no more friends in the Senate, he was declared an enemy of the state and had to flee the city of Rome and eventually commit suicide. Having committed suicide, the emperor's chair is up for grabs. And over the next year, there would be four emperors. The year 69 of the common era is known as the year of the four emperors. Because in quick succession, you have Galba, 
Atho, Vitellius, and Vespasian, all in one year. Uh, the, the fellows who came before Vespasian, when they are no longer the emperor, it's because they're no longer alive. They die, uh, you know, it, it's not a good thing to declare yourself the emperor and then not hold the office, because it means some competitor is out to get you and kill you. Um, Vespasian eventually is able to hold the office uh, and not uh, have any competition, thus enabling him to establish the Flavian dynasty, which would last uh, for 26 years, 27 years, until the, the death of his second son, Domitian, in the year 96. So, but in the year 69, a lot, of, a lot of stuff is happening, and so Vespasian is waiting to see how this will all play out. So he doesn't want to conduct any uh, heavy-duty military activities, He's just waiting for uh, some signal that the chaos is over. Of course, at the end of it, he'll be emperor. He doesn't realize that early on, but he'll have an, an inkling of it by about the December of 68, January of 69. Okay. Uh, now, during this time, from 68 to 69, Shimon bar Giora, Simon bar Giora, who was not in Jerusalem was terrorizing the countryside. Uh, he was a radical revolutionary with messianic ambition, and he um, defeated several small pockets of Roman forces, and um, also conquered forcibly certain Jewish districts, declaring himself the boss. So he's basically like a, a bandit leader who is going to so-called tax people, when really it's just pillaging and, 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 and the, the spoils of the conflict. Um, Simon gets too aggressive, and so Vespasian feels it necessary in May of 69, or June of 69, to once again go on the march and conquer more territory, territory that had been under the thumb of Simon Bargiora. So what regions does he conquer? In the, in the spring of 69, uh, Gafna, Akrava, Beit El, Ephraim, Hebron, all the significant population centers of the Judea, south, including south of Jerusalem. The only areas that are not conquered are Jerusalem itself and the fortresses of Herodion, Masada, and Macareus, which is on the other side of the, the, the Yam HaMelech. So the country has basically been lost, and everyone who survives, is collapsing on Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem is going to swell to astronomical numbers simply because it's the only place left outside of a couple of fortresses where you can only have a few hundred people at most. So, uh, on July 1st, 69, Vespasian was declared the emperor by the Egyptian legion. That didn't mean he was really going to be the emperor. Because the Egyptian legions, as powerful as they might be, is not the totality of the Roman uh, army. There were other contenders to the throne, and Vespasian is not going to show up at Rome unless he knows that his life is secure and his position is secure. The other fellows came to Rome too early, and it didn't work out well for them. So he was waiting at Alexandria until the spring of 70 to know for sure that his position was secure. But in the meantime, from July of uh, 69 to the spring of 70, who's running the show in, in Judea? His son Titus. Now, this was a significant turn of events for the Jews because Vespasian was always reluctant to uh, put a siege around Jerusalem, thinking it would be very costly in life and treasure for the Roman Empire. 
Titus had less hesitation. So with Vespasian gone and Titus in control, the, the move against Jerusalem was speeded up. Uh, the, the, the timetable was going to be uh, uh, shortened. Okay, So with the, uh, the siege on Jerusalem, Shimon bar Giora now has to collapse onto the city. He's not welcome. He sneaks in, or he's able to get in, because of Idumian help. Once again, the Idumians are causing trouble by facilitating the rise of very, very zealot leaders. Um, so there are now three zealot leaders in the city. The upper and part of the lower part of the city is in the hands of, of Simon bar the inner court of the Temple Mount is in the hands of Elazar bar Shimon, which has been for the case for three years. And the, the broader Temple Mount is in the hands of Yochanan of Gush Chalav. The, uh, re- the favorable relationship between Elazar bar Shimon and John of Gush Chalav uh, was rescinded. Their alliance is over. Now there are just three rebel leaders, three rebel armies, all hate each other and are ready to kill each other. Uh, so much so that food supplies will be destroyed so that they don't get into the hands of an, en- of an enemy group. Wow. Kind of like the Altalena, uh, you know, Ben-Gurion Lahavdil, uh, Ben-Gurion and, 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 and Yitzhak Rabin uh, shooting on, on, on the boat to make sure that the guns don't get into the hands of the Lechi and the Irgun. So, this is the trouble that... Uh, befalls the Jewish people in the fall of 69 and the spring of 70. What, what happens next? Well, the siege of Jerusalem begins sometime around uh, a week before Pesach of the year 70. And the siege is conducted by the 5th, 10th, and 15th legions of the Roman Empire. That's a lot of, a, a lot of soldiers. That's, that's a big army. In addition, there was also forces from the 12th Legion. If you remember, the 12th Legion was the one that was defeated uh, in the, when it was led by Cestius Gallus uh, at the Battle of Beit Choron by the Jews four years earlier. So, with the siege around the city, um, you would think that the Jews would consolidate their forces and have a, a unified command, stop the infighting, and go after the enemy. To a certain extent, that happened in 1948. If we want to compare 70 and 48, I mean, uh, the Yitzvah the, Israel, the IDF, was established on June 1st, 1948, and all other uh, fighting forces were declared illegal in the state of Israel. Of course, the problem was that Jerusalem was not in the state of Israel, which means that the Yirgun and Lechi could still function in the old city and even West Jerusalem uh, until August of that year, and uh, really until September when they killed folk Bernadotte. Um, so even in, when, when we have our independence restored, uh, independence didn't necessarily mean all the fighting factions come together to go against the enemy. So in, 40, in, 19, in, in uh, the year 70, that certainly doesn't happen the animosity continues. Pesach is upon us. And as I said, Elazar bar Shimon's uh, goons held the inner court of the temple. And they were the ones who had picked the high priest, Pinchas ben Shmuel. 
Well, on Pesach, people want to offer the Korban Pesach and do the holiday sacrifices and celebrate the Chag. Just because uh, Titus is around the corner with, with uh, 100,000 uh, boys with guns doesn't mean I'm not going to have a good Yontif. So people want to observe the, the Chag and the gates of the temple, the inner court of the temple, are opened by the, uh, the Kanaim of Elazar Bar Shimon on behalf of uh, Yochanan of Gush Chalav and the Sikari. All right, and what happens? Armed men burst into the temple courtyard. They kill Elazar Bar Shimon and some of the Kohanim, and they take over the inner courtyard. So instead of there being three factions, we're now down to two factions. That a strategic blunder, thinking that in you know the spirit of the holiday, you're not going to have any infighting or killing. They were wrong. Uh, even on Yontif, uh, you could kill a fellow Jew. So. At this point, we're only two major figures left. We finally have cooperation between Jews. That uh, Yochanan of Gushchalav and Simon Bargiora work together, they join forces to build up the fortifications of the city and to offer a defense against the, uh, the besiegers, the, the, those who were building the ramparts and the, the, the siege works. Um, the Romans start their offensive against the weakest point in the city's defenses, which was the third wall, the outer wall, which was the most recently built and therefore uh, not, a, not a substantial. That wall um, is a remnant of it today. It's to the north and to the west of the, of the uh, Shar Yafo. Uh, there's some archaeological remnant of it still there. After they broke through um, in early May, they continued towards the second wall and broke through that. What, what remained was the temple compound and the separate uh, fortified positions in the upper city and to a lesser extent the lower city. Now when I say the upper and lower city, are you familiar with, with, with the topographically what I'm referring to? That the upper city is basically um, like Yeshiva Kotel or Sameach, the sections that are uh, um, in terms of um, uh, altitude or above sea level, higher than the Temple Mount. And the lower city is basically Ir David uh, and Chutzot Yotzer today, which is beyond the, uh, the Ottoman walls. Okay, uh, so that's what's left. And this is in early to mid-May. The siege continues, those areas that are still holding out, and the Temple Wall is breached or the inner wall is breached on August 6th, which is the 17th of Tammuz. And the temple is destroyed on the 10th of, uh, of Av, uh, which is roughly the end of August. Now, when the temple was about to be destroyed, the question from the Roman perspective was, to what extent is uh, massive destruction in Roman interests? or possibly against Roman interests. On the one hand, there's this gut feeling that Jewish religion is the basis of Jewish nationalism, and therefore the destruction of the temple will be like a, 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 a knife to the heart of Jewish nationalism, and maybe the Roman Empire will never again have to deal with boisterous and uh, politically active Jews. That's one theory. The other theory is to say that the Jews need their uh, religious center and if you allow it to stand 
while destroying their, their national existence, their political existence, but allowing them to have some sort of uh, faith, it will turn them into politically passive people, but who are at least happy. In other words, satisfied citizens because their religious needs are met. Well, it depends which Jew you talk to. If you talk to like uh, you know uh, 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 an anti-Zionist Nitori uh, Karta uh, type, but of, of the first generation, first century variety, so the survival of the temple in the absence of political uh, uh, independence would be satisfactory. So, if the Romans don't burn down the temple, then Shalom al Yisrael and Shalom for Rome too, and no more problems. But if you ask Naftali Bennett of the first century. So then it's not going to, the, the temple has to go, because as long as there is a religious center, a cultic center, there's going to be national fervor. So you've got to destroy it all. You've got to destroy it all. That's the, uh, the question that the Romans had to address. And so, uh, according to the sources, there was some meeting of the general staff in August of 70, at which a vote was taken about whether or not to destroy the temple. And so, according to this legend, Titus voted against the destruction of the temple as did Tiberius Alexander, the Meshuma Jew, who had been the, the, the procurator in Judea in the 40s, if you remember, and then who later went on to become the prefect of Egypt and be, was the, the deputy chief, chief of staff to Titus. So several votes were, don't destroy the temple. If that's the case, why was the temple destroyed? In fact, why did it burn down? Okay, okay. So, so two reasons. Number one, the Jews fight to the bitter end. And as long as fighting goes on to the bitter end, the other side, the Roman army, doesn't have the luxury of, of, being, uh, uh, pull, of pulling back and, and, and trying to salvage whatever they can. They have to fight to the death uh, until the enemy has been defeated. That's one element. The other is that in the chaos, which is a close hand-to-hand combat uh, in an urban environment, including the use of, fl- of flamethrowers and uh, you know, Molotov cocktails of the first century variety, um, things can get out of hand at the very localized level beyond the ability of the, the, uh, the, the military hierarchy to control. Just because they took a vote not to burn down a building doesn't mean some low-ranking soldier isn't going to throw some incendiary device and poof, it goes up in smoke. So it is claimed that that's exactly what happened. That not according to the wishes of the the high-ranking officers, but just uh, low-ranking soldiers used flame and the wind carried it in one direction, other direction, and it pushed it towards the temple and the building burned down. Okay. In truth, the building didn't really burn down. The building was damaged considerably. And walls were knocked down, made out of stone. Knocked down, not burnt. Stone doesn't burn. Okay? Wood burns. Metal can melt. But stones don't really burn. I mean, they can get charred, but they still exist. So, some walls were knocked down forcibly by the... the, the, the um, uh, the, the, the ramrods the, 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 from the siege works but the, the building of the Mikdash the, 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 the Heichal and the, the, and the Kodesh Kodeshim that temple structure although it suffered considerable damage was still in existence 60 years later and it was destroyed by Hadrian how do we know this? 
Well, number one, the sources from 70 imply that it wasn't totally destroyed. But also, rabbinic literature credits Hadrian for destroying the temple. And some people thought that was a ta'ut sofer, that was a, mis- a scribal error in the midrashic literature. After all, how could it be that Hadrian destroyed the temple? That's in the year 132, 135. Not, and we know the temple was destroyed in 70. Answer is, it wasn't a ta'ut sofer, that the, the building was partly intact for a good two generations afterwards. And people still went to the, to the, to the, to the, the site of the, of the Mikdash when they could get away with it, and when the Romans weren't looking, and maybe even offered korbanot, which I've spoken about in the past. Um, so there's destruction, there's devastation, but there's still a remnant uh, that uh, survives. Okay. Yes, yes. <coughs> Everything was missing. No, nothing of significance was, was spared other than the building structure was partly intact and some walls were partly intact. But anything of value or of uh, sentimental value to the Jews was, was stolen. Okay. Now, um, so that's an interesting question. Do we, do we, did we find any of those things? So in the Gemara and in the Midrash, we have several reports, multiple reports, of rabbinic figures who went to Rome and went to the to the uh, the Temple of Peace, where the uh, the spoils of of the the Great Revolt were housed. The um, the Fl- the Flavian dynasty was proud of its victory over Judea, and they put on display in the city of Rome for over a hundred years until its destruction in the year one ninety one. Uh, Kalim of Jewish significance. Whether it was the, uh, the parochet that separated the Kodesh from Kodesh Kodeshim, or it was the menorah, or, or the shulchan, we have various reports of people seeing these items. So they were intact, presumably for a good hundred years. But that, that uh, structure or that place was destroyed about 120 years after the Churban Abayit, and we don't hear from anything any, after that. So any talk about the Vatican having things in the basement is probably uh, foolishness, because number one, the Vatican didn't exist in that form until the year 400. Uh, so they were not the successors necessarily. Uh, we don't know. Listen, they could have something, but, but um, they were not the immediate successors of... Uh, of the of the Roman em- of the, the pagan Roman Empire in terms of possession of Jewish artifacts, so yeah. we don't really know, but most likely not. Huh? The Temple of Peace, yeah. It was in Rome. In Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. That's not surprising. The church was looking to make a holy place. So. Now, what happened to the people? What happened to the people who had fought this war? Well, many, many died in the devastation that was uh, August of 70. Depends upon who you ask in terms of the numbers. Josephus has an inflated number of 1.1 million deaths. That's not, that doesn't sound right. Others say about 600,000 deaths. That sounds more reasonable. With a, a considerable number of people being sold into slavery and shipped off 
to uh, the Italian peninsula and to North Africa, basically to all parts of the Roman Empire as slave labor. As a result of that, it was necessary for Jewish communities around the world, around the empire, including the Jewish community of Eretz Israel that, that remained, to try to do pidyon shvuim, to redeem captives. The most famous story of the redemption of captives involves um, the great rabbi, uh, uh, Yishmael ben Elisha. Yishmael ben Elisha, who is claimed to be the grandson of Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol, Okay, of a Kohanic high priestly family, was taken captive to Rome, and that Yehoshua ben Hanania was on a, a mission to redeem captives, and he, he was outside of a, of a dungeon, and he said half of a pasuk, and the boy in the dungeon finished the pasuk in Yeshayahu. And on the basis of, of knowing how to finish the pasuk, that he knew the whole Tanakh by heart, so, so Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania said, I'm going to redeem this boy no matter how much it costs. And, and it won't be long before he'll be a great rabbi in Israel. And who did that boy become? Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. Okay, so you have these stories about the redemption of captives. But this was very important because uh, a, a, a significant number of people were sold off into slavery, which, by the way, forms the kernel of European Jewry going forward. Uh, Jewish communities in, in, in the Italian peninsula, in the, in the Greek-speaking in the, in the Greek lands, also further, further west to Gaul and to Spain... Uh, how did Jews get there? In part, by being taken there forcibly in the aftermath of the Chorban. That is the kernel of truth, the kernel of truth to the notion of Galut Edom. Last year, we spent a whole year discussing the, 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 the Roman and Byzantine period, the post-Temple period, and we began the, the year's discussions with the question of, was there really ever a Galut Edom? Was there a Roman exile? Because there's a Babylonian captivity, but Babylonian exile, that's a, that's, a, that's a historic truth. But was there ever really a, 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 a removal, a forcible removal of a Jewish population from the land of Israel to points elsewhere by the Romans? And the answer is on the whole, no, there wasn't. It's, it's basically a myth. But to, to the extent that there's any truth, it's because the, the Shvuim, who were taken captive, were sent for the most part to the West, to North Africa and Southern Europe. Okay. What happened to the leaders of this re- rebellion? So, Elazar uh, bar Shimon died at the hands of fellow Jews. Shimon ben Gamliel died at the hands, presumably, of fellow Jews. Ananus ben Ananus died at the hands of fellow Jews. Yeshua ben Gamla died at the hands of fellow Jews. Okay? Uh, the father of um, Elazar ben Hanania, Hanania, the former high priest, was killed by Menachem, a fellow Jew. Menachem was killed by fellow Jews. So, for the most part, revolutionary figures and the so-called moderates who were seen as Roman collaborators but really weren't Roman collaborators were all killed by fellow Jews. Who died at the hands of the Romans? Shimon Bar Giora was watched as a... Okay, so Shimon Bar and Yochanan of Gush Chalav were taken as prisoner to Rome. But they suffered different fates. Do you know what happened to them? Giora was, uh, was beheaded after he was marched in... Okay, so, so Bar was put into the, into the, uh, the parade where they took all the, the Kalim and the, the victory parade for Titus in the year 71. Was marched into the stadium, he was booed and heckled and, and so on and so forth, but he was not beheaded. Hmm. Instead, he was killed by being pushed off of the rock, uh, the, the, the precipice next to the Roman Forum, the, the, the Turkian Rock, I forget the exact name of it, uh, it starts with a T. Um, and it's about 80 feet high, 
And I've been there. On my honeymoon, we went to Rome, and we, and we saw the spot where Shimbargiori was killed. And you see, it's a, it's a big, big rock, and there are houses built on each side of the rock. It's about like seven, eight stories high, and it was pushed off the side. Is that really romantic? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 You're right. And if, if you go into the encyclopedias, if you go into the encyclopedias, there's a list of famous people who were killed by being pushed off that rock. Only very prominent political prisoners of Rome were, uh, were given this uh, treatment. And he's, he's up there with about, with, a, with about, about a half a dozen other figures over the long span of Roman history who were pushed off this, this precipice as a means of execution. Okay, but Yochanan of Gushchalav did not get executed. He was given a life sentence in jail. That's surprising. After all, so many random civilians were butchered to death by the invading forces who, who took Jerusalem, why would a rebel leader not get executed? And we don't have a good answer for that. But the only thing we can speculate is that the difference between the treatment of Yochanan of Gushchalav on the one hand and uh, Shimon Bar Giora on the other is that once Jewish nationalism was defeated, it wasn't all that important to the Romans to exact vengeance on those who had been Jewish nationalists. But those who had a social agenda of undoing society, up, you know, uh, turning it on its head and having the, the, the poor dispossess the rich and all those sorts of uh, social upheavals, that's still very dangerous. And Schoenberg Yoro rep- represented that wing of the, of the Zealot Party who wanted uh, you know, Jewish rule instead of pagan rule but also wanted uh, populist revolution. So he was executed, whereas Yochanan Gushchalav was just a, 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 a chauvinist Jew who hated Goyim. And once the Goyim defeated the Jews, it wasn't such a big deal to let him live, uh, throw him in the dungeon and let him live out his years. Okay. Is the war over at this point? The answer is basically yes. But there are always people who hold out for more. When the temple was captured, that actually was not the end of the, the battle for Jerusalem. Because the upper city, which was the most strongly fortified position in the city, um, remained uh, a holdout. And there were fighters who were st- still willing to, um, to pick up arms against Rome. And so the, the very steep valley, which is today basically the, the, the Kotel Plaza, uh, that, that separates the Temple Mount from the upper city, uh, was a no man's land and the, the, the defenders of the upper city uh, had their, uh, their, their spears, their javelins, their, their boiling oil to, to pour over the, over the side, okay? And they try their best, but by the fall, by October, um, they are defeated. The only thing that the Romans leave intact are three towers of Herod's palace and a section of the western wall of the, tem- of the Temple Mount. The western walls are Kotel Hamaravi, as we know, and the reason for keeping intact part of Herod's palace was to serve as a protection for the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is still going to be a city of some consequence after the war. From a Jewish point of view, it's, not, you know, it's, it's nothing compared to what it was before, but there will still be people living there, and it has to be defended by Roman troops. So some fortifications were left intact for the post-war uh, era. Okay. In 71, Titus leaves. His father is sitting on the, uh, the throne of the, uh, of the emperor in Rome. 
firmly ensconced there. He'll be there until the year 79 when he dies. Vespasian dies in 79. Titus goes for the victory lap in Rome in 71. And uh, what do they do to mock their victory? Aside from a, par- a ticker tape parade with, um, with prisoners, there also is the display of sacred vessels. Most notably, the Shulchan and the Menorah. The Shulchan and the Menorah are then depicted in the Arch of Titus, um, which was constructed sometime, we think, in uh, the late 70s, uh, within a decade of his victory. There are coins that are minted that uh, say Judea capta, Judea is taken captive, and the picture on the coin is that of a glorious Roman soldier uh, with, a, with, a, with a spear in hand vic- uh, uh, displaying his victory and a Jew bent on one knee like this sort of pleading his case before the Roman soldier so this was a big deal it was not like any other military victory in the, the long history of Roman rule over many provinces huh? this is the coin yeah Judea Capta yeah. so Normally, um, the conquering general would uh, accept congratulations from the Senate. Titus supposedly responded that uh, there's no need to congratulate me, I defeated a people whose God had abandoned them. Now, did Titus really say that? Doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound right. What does that really sound like? It sounds like the rabbis wrote that. Why? Because what was, the, what was the later, much later rabbinic reaction to the destruction of the temple? That God's house wasn't really God's house. It was just an empty building. That God's house is God's house when He's there. When the Shekhinah Shruyah Yisrael, that because of our virtuous ways, the Divine Presence wants to and does rest in the, the sacred space. But when our behavior is corrupt and we don't have our virtues, so the Shekhinah has departed and what remains is just a shell of a building that to be conquered and defeated by a larger army is to be expected and nothing out of the ordinary. That was the theological approach of the later rabbis. Um, This expresses itself in a, a certain passage in the Gemara when it talks about the, the, the Galuyot of the Sanhedrin and the Galuyot of the Shekhinah. That the Sanhedrin was at Lishkata Gazit, the chamber of the hewn stone, which is right off of the Azara, the temple courtyard on Harabait, and that starting from 40 years before the Khurban, it exiled itself to various places within the city of Jerusalem, and then after the Khurban, it exiled itself to Yavne, and then to the Galilee, to Shfaram, to Beit Sharim, and to Tzipori, and the like, Okay, so there are, there are ten different places where the, where the court goes, and wherever the court goes, God also exiles himself with them. So the idea being that God was angry and left his perch in, uh, between the, uh, the Kruvim uh, uh, above the Aron and the Kodesh Karashim, but God never fully left the Jewish people. That God stays with the, uh, the, the righteous of our people, the, the, uh, those who implement the law, the Sanhedrin, the expositors of Torah, God is with them, but absent from the Beit HaMikdash. So the, the, the idea that Titus made that remark, 
doesn't yeah. doesn't sound doesn't sound right, but it, it it conforms to Jewish theology. But we but nonetheless we should acknowledge that Vespasian and Titus did see their victory over Judea as a really special victory, something which um, justified their retaining control over the Roman Empire for a goodly number of decades. What's the purpose of the emperor? To wage, to wage successful military campaigns, not to be a loser. So you want to be like a Donald Trump, a winner, okay? You don't want to be a loser. And the fact that they defeated the Judeans who fought ferociously and, 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 and bravely was a feather in their cap. Feather in their cap. Okay. Um, the holdouts were in the various uh, for- fortresses of Judea. Herodion, Macareus, and Masada. Of which Masada is, the only, is by far the most famous. Uh, now, it's it's like uh, opposite Ein Gedi, on the other side of, 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 of Yama Melech. Today it's in Jordan. Um, yeah, well, because th- there were uh, Jewish communities on, on the other side of the river. Huh? You don't hear about it, because you don't hear much about, about the Jewish communities on the other side of the river, in the Perea. Uh, I mean, they existed, but they don't ex- But they, after about the 3rd century of the Common Era, they're gone. And they didn't have anything. There, there are not too many excavations done of Jewish settlement in, on the east side of the river simply because, I mean, who's interested in this? Jewish archaeologists. What country is it in? Jordan. There's peace with Jordan, but still, you don't, you don't take chances. Okay. So, um, Titus, having left the country, must put the Judea in the hands of some kind of governor. And the first governor was Lucilius Bassus. But he got sick and died in the year 72, before the war was fully, fully over. Elazar ben Yair, the grandson, or possibly the great-grandson, of Judas the Galilean, uh, so from the, the, the dignified family with Yichus and the Zealot movement, he leads the group at Masada. This group had been there for a while and had additional refugees who came from, who escaped from Jerusalem uh, and to go up to the top of the rock there. Um, they had a, a significant supply of food and water, which was, allowed them to hold out for a very long time. Flavius Silva, played by Richard O'Toole, um, very, I must say that's a very good movie. Um, isn't it called Masada? Is it, uh, it's, the title's Masada, yeah. Um, it was 1981. Uh, it's been on TV a few times. You can get it on Netflix. So, Elazar uh, uh, ben Yair has a supply of food and has a supply of water. Where did he get it? He got it because uh, he was able to uh, steal from the countryside and you know take goats and sheep and and, and, f- and fruits and bring it up the mountain. Okay. And until there was a siege around, around Masada, he basically had a free hand in the Judean wilderness to do whatever he wanted. He was the only strong man left. How many people were there? About a thousand people. They said 967 people, roughly. How did the, uh, the siege come to an end? Well, as you know, they built a ramp up the side of the mountain. This... Huh? Yeah. yeah. So the... the uh, this was a very impressive um, effort on the part of the Roman engineers 
because unlike the siege of Jerusalem or the siege of Yodfat or the siege of Gamla, where uh, all you have to do is get over a wall, a man-made wall, here you have a thousand-foot-high natural structure that is not, not a simple task. So, it, so the, the siege took a very, very long time. Traditionally, the year for the conclusion of the siege is, the, is 73. However, modern, uh, more recent scholarship says that's incorrect. It was the year 74, because Silva wasn't appointed um, as the, the governor until the summer of 73. And if he was the victorious general, then it couldn't have been in 73. It had to have been in the spring of 74. How, how and why did the people die? So this is shrouded in, in legend with the story of Josephus at Jotapada at Yodfat being very similar to the story of Masada, with people killing themselves and the last few having to, uh, you know, take their own lives. There is reason to suspect that, that this is not just um, death for the sake of avoiding torture at the hands of the Romans, but rather there was some religious ritual involved because the nature of the death was shchita, was slaughter at the neckline, with uh, the cutting of the shnei simanim, uh, the kana and veshet, the, 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 the windpipe and the esophagus. So just like you want to do kosher slaughter on an animal, you have to do that, so too it was done for these people, which is something you don't find again in Jewish history until the period of the Crusades when Jews killed themselves and killed their own children to avoid uh, forced baptism. So what I'm saying is that... I thought they starved. Huh? No, no, so they didn't starve. No, they had food. Wait, wait. Well, once there was a siege, they had plenty of food. Okay, so? And, yeah. No, so they, they, they died by killing themselves. So, so some people survived. It is claimed that seven people survived. Why and how? So likely, there were people who didn't want to die and didn't want to kill themselves, and they hid in the, in the, in the caves, in the, in the underground passages... Uh, whenever you have a mass suicide, you always have a few survivors because they chicken out at the last minute. And that's, on the basis of those survivors, we have some kind of testimony about what happened. So, let's say there had been no survivors. How would you know what happened? So, when the Romans get to the top, they see the physical evidence of people with, with neck stabs, okay? And they realize that that was the, the general method of, of, of killing themselves to avoid capture. Okay, uh, so with the end of, of uh, the siege at Masada, there no longer is any more uh, violence against Rome. The war is, is completely and absolutely over. Um, in truth... The war only lasted from 66 to 70. And there wasn't that much uh, fighting during the war after the year 67 um, when the Galilees surrendered other than the siege of Jerusalem. So the war was in bits and pieces. It wasn't a continuous flow. And then you had the last holdouts at the, on, the, on the top of Masada. So although it's 66 to 74, it's not an eight-year war. It's really like a two-year war followed by another two-year civil war followed by three years of a mop-up job uh, for the handful of, uh, of people who refused to, to surrender quietly. Okay. With this, the, the Second Temple period is over.